Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Adam Kingsmith and I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And I'm Aris Komporoso Safanasu. I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. This episode features a conversation between us, the organizers of this project. It was recorded on July 19th as part of the Conspiracies and Counter Games Summer Institute, organized by this project and rival, the Reimagining Value Action Lab. We now turn it over to the Institute's host, Max Haven, Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. I want to move to the main event, so to speak, and introduce you to my colleagues. The three of us work together in this project, Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, and you can learn more about that project, which includes a podcast of which this and other conversations in the Institute will be a part, as well as a number of writing initiatives uh, by the three of us and our friends and colleagues, as well as a game that we're designing, which I hope to uh, share a little bit more with you about later in this session. So, Aris is an associate professor of sociology at University College London, where he leads the sociology and social theory research group. He's the author of Speculative Communities, Living with Uncertainty in a Financialized World, which is coming out from University of Chicago Press later this year. And he's working on another book tentatively titled Winning the Real Fake, uh, which is an intellectual history of conspiracy in finance capitalism. And I'm also joined today by our colleague A.T. Kingsmith, who's a PhD candidate in the Department of Politics at York University, and also a co-founder of EIQ Technologies, an emotion AI startup based out of the design fabrication zone in the creative innovation studio of X University, formerly known as Ryerson University. His forthcoming monograph is Anxiety as a Weapon, an effective approach to political economy, and it explores new modes of transforming the mental health landscape. Aris and Adam, thank you so much for being part of this project and helping kick off this institute. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I should say we've been working on this project, I think for maybe a little more than six months perhaps. Um, And it's been really a pleasure to work with both of you. This project evolves out of another project that Aris and I were working on, on capitalism and anxiety. And in that course of that project, we met Adam through his uh, work, his scholarship on anxiety as a weapon. And I guess I wanted to start maybe by introducing your work or asking you to introduce your work to the folks who are gathered here about the politics of anxiety. And then also ask you to maybe tie that in to your ongoing work with uh, this biosensors startup, which uh, I think is, yeah, it's a very interesting way of exploring these ideas as well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Yeah, it is a really interesting way of trying to explore these ideas from maybe an interdisciplinary or a bit more of like a sort of techno-scientific perspective. Um, so I'll just, yeah, I'll just dive in. Um, yeah, my, so my project that I was a kind of culmination of my dissertation research, which I hope to defend sometime soon, uh, Anxiety as a Weapon. It looks at different ways uh, that how anxiety is personalized and internalized 
uh, kind of creates stigma and alienation in populations. Um, you know, I look at how constraints to accessing mental health support, institutional biases, austerity cuts, and the turn towards like e-health, you know, all, all of mental health is done through apps now and is done through digital. Um, how this has kind of intensified a disease-based approach to care, which treats sufferers as individual cases while undervaluing the social, political, economic, and emotional contexts within which these cases uh, unfold. And so the resultant effect uh, in, that I found is there's a culture of kind of shame and stigma around mental health as people are humiliated and denigrated for violating social norms of self-sufficiency and individuation, which direct our focus inwards at a time when people are feeling more precarious and insecure than ever before. And so what I mean by this is this dominant notion of anxiety, depression, mental health is something that is wrong with you as an individual, uh, be it your own behavioral deficiencies, uh, faulty coping mechanisms, or even biochemical imbalances, bad brains, so to speak. These inundate most of the apps, consumer goods, and self-help treatments that push us to internalize our own health and well-being as synonymous with productivity and purchasing power. And so the argument that I try and make in this project and in my work more generally is there's an alternative way or a different way to make sense of anxiety and to make sense of, of mental health, to weaponize it, so to speak. When I talk about anxiety as a weapon, I really mean to sort of reappropriate it, to take it from something that's paralyzing and see if we can turn it into something that's, that's mobilizing, right? So what I mean by this again is if we turn our focus instead of, you know, my failings, my wrong choices to, you know, underemployment and overwork, to, to debt levels and to ethno-nationalism and to the climate crisis, to the rise of, you know, right-wing terrorism, pandemic loneliness, right? We can see how feelings of self-doubt, uh, hopelessness, dehumanization um, have a lot more to do with a pervasive loss of trust and social support and a kind of a collapse of community connectedness than they necessarily do with an individual person's internal processes. And right, so, in a lot of ways, I think this focus on a loss of trust and social support really dovetails nicely with our project on conspiracy games and counter games, right? Because we're looking at how the structural climate of individualism, precarity, misinformation, right? How these things have alienated and overwhelmed people in ways that is making them more susceptible to conspiracy fantasies like QAnon um, and things like that. And I think we'll, we'll obviously get into that. But I think in particular, to connect it kind of up to my work around biometrics briefly, um, my interest in gamification and counter games as a response to the reactionary nature of many dominant conspiracies today comes from my work uh, doing this emotion AI startup called EIQ Technologies, um, because we use uh, biosensors to monitor heart rates, to determine emotional states. And so what we're really doing there is we're taking your heart rate variability, your HRV, we're trying to ask the body directly how a person is feeling. So we try and correlate where were you and what were you doing when you had an anxiety attack or a bout of depression or an experience of joy so that we can situate emotions and experiences in their larger social and environmental contexts. Again, looking at it beyond an individual. So like the sort of the board game and some of the interventions that we're developing in our project, I think what we're trying to do with EIQ is to repurpose some of the tools that drive people towards conspiratorialism to offer alternatives. And maybe I'll, I'll I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. It's incredible, incredibly interesting work. Um, I want to bring Aris in here um, because, as I mentioned, uh, this this project on conspiracies and games evolved out of the work that Aris and I were doing uh, in in the course of which we met you, Adam. 
on uh, anxiety and capitalism, which which Aris and I found as a topic through our mutual interest in something called financialization. Both Aris and I are, are scholars of financialization. It's the process by which uh, all sorts of social institutions well beyond the sort of financial sector of the capitalist economy come to take on the characteristics of the financialized economy. Um, so Aris, I wanted to bring you in here and, and ask you how your interests in uh, conspiracies and games and the topics of anxiety and, and the kind of psychic life of capitalism dovetail with your research, for instance, in, in your book, which is coming out later this year, Speculative Communities. Yeah, thanks, Max. And thanks again for having us here today. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's great to also follow on from what Adam was saying and kind of his points about uh, the the way the ways of producing critique through reconsidering uh, the nature of anxiety and it's especially taking into account the collective nature of our of this of the of it as a predicament um, and mobilize the the elements that that exist. Uh, as, as a resistance, as a mode of resistance uh, within anxiety. And I think there's something about this imminence, this element of imminence that is very interesting in uh, the, the way in which you and I, Max, have always looked at finance and financialization as a space, not only to critique, but also as a space to which we can turn to uh, improve our tools for critique. Uh, and for me, there's a, the, this is an important point. This is a, this is a principle that is conveyed through through my forthcoming book, Speculative Communities, and also underpins a lot of my current thinking around the study of conspiracies and the worlds of these worlds of what I call the real fake uh, that that uh, of contemporary financialized capitalism. And just to say a few words on this, it, it, what what are the way to explain a bit more about what I mean? This uh, finance, how I understand finance as a space that is uh, generative, uh, uh, socially and politically generative, and it gives us interesting toolkits with which to improve our critical uh, uh, capabilities. Uh, so I want to bring the example of speculation, of financial speculation as a fascinating world that I've tried uh, for the last few years to look at in more detail. Um, and as a world that has different sides to it that encompasses a very interesting attempt in, within financial markets to look at the future's uncertainty and to engage with volatility, not so as to reduce it or control it or predict it or calculate it as we often think about financial markets and what they do, but quite on the contrary, to fuel it, to, uh, to increase it, to make uh, to, to make things more volatile and more uncertain and, and, and through that process to profit even more. In other words, I'm interested in the capacity of finance, of markets, of speculative markets, not only to uh, over-rationalize and in doing so to uh, control and co-opt our imaginations, our creative imaginations, but also at finance's own imagination the, the imaginative capacities that finance contains and which allow them to draw profit from the unknown, from the volatile, from the uncertain. And so that's a key point because uh, through 
unpicking this capacity that exists within finance. I'm hoping to understand broader social and political transformations through financialization and financial capitalism that uh, have had a great impact on, uh, on, on the level of society, human subjectivity, our political agency. And so the broad argument that I make in the book, in speculative communities, is that, uh, uh, in fact, far financialization, far from being simply a process of fragmenting society, of segmenting, of isolating, it has also, so finance certainly cleaves society, but it also creates certain modes of existence, certain modes of agency that are very highly speculative. And they are speculative increasingly in a way that is also collective, not just individual. In other words, I think that uh, rather than simply creating a society of entrepreneurial risk takers that with, remain within the individual cocoon and, and seek to, mark, to take risks and uh, optimize opportunities, we have as increasingly a type of collectivity in financialized society whereby uh, people are being connected through a shared speculative imagination. So through an attempt, in other words, to uh, not control uncertainty, but to delve into volatile situations. And we see this politically, and I think uh, in, in developments such as the rise of more sinister developments like the rise of neo-nationalist uh, populism, Trumpism, Brexitism. So instances where people no longer behave rationally in that in choosing safe options, but neither are they behaving entirely irrationally as crowds. They behave speculatively in a way that they seek to stay with the unknown, stay with the chaotic uh, as, a, as a valid response. Uh, and, 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 and there is a lot of that is, that is going on in the world of conspiracy, which is what brought me into the world of conspiracies. I think conspiracy movements are one speculative community. So they're not simply irrational crowds seeking some higher truth, uh, nor do they simply seek to connect the dots and find rational explanation to uncover. Uh, I think it's a community that seeks to do both something very speculative, but also to create collective myths. It's a myth-making community uh, in order to allow it to navigate uncertainty and volatility. And the final point I want to make is that increasingly what I find fascinating and that leads me to my current project, conspiracy movements are the kind of speculative community that they don't merely uh, create new myths or in this case, in the case of QAnon, regressive or nationalist myths even, but they, they, the kind of myths they create are increasingly weird and strange and indiscernible and hard to comprehend. So, this ex explanation that conspiracies seek to provide clear narratives, a clear, easy way out of a complex situation, I think is not true. I think there's something about conspiracy movements that seeks to stay with the dark, the unknown, the volatile. And so the conspiracies itself come to resemble the very volatile conditions that give rise to them from which they emanate. So, but I'll put a full stop there for now. Um, but yeah, this is how I think my previous work and the current project uh, sort of linking together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, thank you. And it sort of answers or begins to answer what, what I was next going to pose to you, which is like the the importance of games to all of this. And I mean, to a certain extent, I think all three of us share this approach to thinking about conspiracy fantasies and conspiracy movements as emerging from the kinds of alienation, um, 
sort of the the sense of loneliness and confusion that comes from living in a world that's been really profoundly transformed by finance and financialization, uh, by neoliberalism, by what uh, Marcus Gilroy Ware, who's a previous guest on our podcast, calls the market-driven society. Um, and this drives people to gather in new ways and to think in new ways, ways that are often dangerous. And we, we've characterized this in some of our recent work, which should be coming out soon, hopefully, as a kind of dangerous play. Um, I just wanted to follow up on it by, by inviting uh, you, Aris, to kind of speak about the importance of games and play to how people sort out these kind of the speculative ethos in which they live, this kind of speculative communities, briefly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, no, thanks for this. And indeed, I mean, I think games are an absolutely fascinating uh, world that uh, encompasses a lot of the, the uh, ethos of speculative communities. And it offers very interesting uh, vehicles and spaces within which speculative communities uh, come together and they exercise their, their imagination. So I sort of think that games are, a, at least for me, they were a bit of a misunderstood world. And I think, you know, in, in, the, in mainstream uh, coverage and perceptions, they're often uh, seen as uh, dark and worlds where individuals kind of enter rabbit holes and they kind of stay in a state of permanent destruction and, and, and self-destruction as well. And, uh, I, I think there is there is an element there of uh, I think there is something about there is an element of truth in that of course but I think there are interesting parallels in our misconception of game games and the gaming world and our misconceptions of finance I think there are absolutely you're absolutely right to say that uh, games are worlds of uh, anxiety and of of uh, uh, fantasy and of uh, escapism perhaps but i think they also are worlds of myth making and of myth endorsement and uh, they're not just because they are such worlds they're not just individual uh, they don't just represent or uh, we, sh- we can't just understand them on an, in- on an individual level so i think there's something about the elements of play and enjoyment and fun that that games offer that uh, also the, or the element of playing playing the system or, or winning or achieving something through a, an aim through uh, through playing uh, the, these are very interesting principles that have a very interesting political reading as well and I think there are instances in which we we see that that political reading in contem- in our contemporary in contemporary news and uh, again, I want to emphasize the links between finance and gaming. And we often think of finance as this world of uh, geeks that derivative traders that uh, uh, work with algorithms and they have this uh, kind of uh, behaviors that are uh, detached from society and kind of look, they, they utilize uh, mathematical tools to and looking at screens all day in dark rooms uh, in order to engage with uh, values that are completely outside of this world and and to bend uh, values uh, real values right to create in order to generate profit and often we think of gamers exactly under that 
a very similar lens. Uh, I, I like the, the phrase, uh, there is something in finance which is called short and distort, uh, which is used as a phrase used to, to, to describe uh, the way in which uh, financial traders uh, uh, sort of uh, distort reality or, or propagate false news, fake news we can tell them, in order to generate the kind of uh, circumstances that would allow them to make uh, bets and take wages that will give them profit. Uh, so there's this element of distortion of reality that is inherent in finance. And there is also a similar element of distortion of reality that is inherent in games. But I think in both cases, it's a bit misunderstood to go back to my initial point. And I think that this kind of distortion is not entirely, uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't produce fake worlds. It produces, it has something very real to it. Uh, and, it, and it's that real that I want to try and understand. There's something interesting about distortion itself as a principle in electronics, that distortion in sound is often used in, in Dolby digital system to, as a way of, to navigate and control noise. Uh, so you use distortion kind of productively by engineers to, to, uh, to, uh, to, to reduce noise uh, in, in sound. And I think, there is, this is an interesting principle, how we can use within how the way in which games distort reality, similar to how finance distorts reality, can be an interesting uh, principle to operationalize for progressive means. So what does it mean to distort reality in a way that doesn't amount to a, a binary a denial of, the, uh, of, of reality, but to, to a, or to an escapism and another, another reality, but uh, to an intervention, to a real political intervention. Because in finance, the distortion creates very real outcomes, creates, creates very real profits, and creates very real misery as well, on the other hand. Um, so yeah, I'll, perhaps I'll leave it here. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating question about how distortion could lead to making society better um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in a strange way. Uh, well, I think we'll come back to that near the end of our conversation today. And I just want to say for those who are in the Zoom room, uh, in, a, in a few minutes, about 10 minutes or so, I think we'll probably start moving towards taking some questions for you, from you, I should say. Um, if you want to post your questions in the chat, I will go through them and I will relay them to our guests. Um, you can send them directly to me by a, a direct message in chat or uh, I'll just post them publicly. Um, and uh, I'd be very happy to pass those on. But before we get there, I just want to go back to Adam for a second and, and make a little segue to what I was going to ask Adam, which is about some of our critiques of uh, games that attempt to take on conspiracy theories and conspir uh, conspiracism by pointing out that I think maybe to echo some of the points that, that Aris has raised in, in, our collect in the work that we three are doing together, uh, which should be published soon if all goes well, We've sort of um, suggested that a lot of what we're seeing in the world of conspiracy fantasies is a kind of reaction to, um, to the feeling that most of us have that we're somehow trapped in a game that we can't win and we can't escape. Um, and that this game is rigged against us. And, and the idea that the game is rigged and there's no escape from it and you have to play the game or quit uh, seems to be pervasive, not only in North America and Western Europe, but indeed around the world. We're seeing great, very high levels of withdrawal among youth who feel like it's not really particularly worth it to strive and struggle in the sort of capitalist market-driven game just to end up 
with a life of constant competition and and hustle. And we've likened, uh, you know, the this, the emergence of these kind of counter games or these kind of conspiracy uh, uh, live action games to uh, a kind of response to that gamified world that's so uh, that's been so shaped by financial pressures that it feels like nothing else is possible that this is the era of capitalist realism when you know capitalism is here to stay even if we all know it's just going to get worse and worse for most people and especially worse and worse for the environment uh, and we've contrasted this I think in, in a way that I want to bring bring to the table here with them. Um, with the really interesting ideas of the late anthropologist David Graeber, who in some of his last works was really concerned with the importance of play to human development, uh, which has been clear for a long time for students of human development, but really to politics as well, uh, and to society and to the way that societies organize themselves, that somehow playing and games are, are really at the core of what makes us not only human, what not only makes us mammalian, but also what makes us animate uh, creatures on earth. I mean, many, many different types of creatures play and Graeber even speculates that subatomic particles play. Uh, and so there's a way that capitalism, not only as in a kind of older understanding of capitalism represses play and says, no, you can never play, just get back to work. Rather it commodifies play and it puts play to work. And even worse, perhaps, it starts to sell products. It starts to enroll us into regimes of work and accumulation and exploitation through gamification, through offering us these games that get us to, for instance, participate in the economy in new ways, to uh, harvest our data in new ways, as we learned with such dramatic consequences with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, where online games were used to harvest data that was then weaponized against populations during elections. Um, so games are serious business and they're serious business, especially in this era of financialization, as you're pointing out. Now, because they're serious business, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that those who are trying to counter or to debunk conspiracy fantasies, which are themselves kind of game-like in terms of their, their participants feeling like they're part of a community of play, a community of creativity, uh, those who are trying to debunk or counter conspiracy fantasies are also using games. And here I want to turn back to you, Adam, to ask, ask specifically about something that we've been writing about and, and your research really led uh, us to, to think through, which is this game called Harmony Square, uh, which was developed by the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense in the United States, or at least in collaboration with them. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, but I think the idea behind this game was that by showing people what it would be like to play a quote unquote disinformation agent, someone who's trying to destroy the public sphere in a fictional small town, uh, you could inoculate, or as they say, pre-bunk people so that when they encountered these kind of tactics of disinformation and conspiracism in the real world, they would recognize them and be more resistant to them in the same way that when you get inoculated to a um, a virus like the COVID-19 virus, presuming we don't believe the conspiracy theories about the vaccines, um, you develop a kind of, your, your immune system develops a, a response that can defeat the virus when you encounter it in the future. Um, but what's, I mean, what's the problem with games like that? Why, why doesn't this work? Why it should work, shouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think ideologically, there's a fundamental trick or turn that a game like Harmony Square is trying to do. Um, 
as we kind of try and argue in the piece, I think what the game does subtly is it attempts to shift power away from communities and networks of people, presumably because they can be conspiratorial, and onto the individual uh, through the application of a concept from behavioral economics known as nudging, right? And this is a classic trick we've talked a lot about in our own work and together in neoliberalism. It's all about instilling this idea of sort of like homo economicus, the economic man, the primary operator. So it's about reinserting this individual as the agent, right? So as they can design environments to steer people towards better choices. And so it's an attempt to sort of derail some of the shared speculative imagination, I think, that, that Aris was just speaking to. And so, you know, just to give a basic example of, I think, how, how nudging is such a fundamental logic, and then I'll explain a bit of why I think it, it doesn't really work in the game, right, is when we think about, let's say, the university, the way in which markets can incentivize students to choose certain majors, right? No one is telling you which major to choose, to go social sciences, to go to STEM, to go to humanities. But at the same time, there are social structures that can nudge you towards these things because, you know, certain majors get more stable work. Certain departments have better funding. Certain career choices garner more social capital or economic security. So there's like an implicit sort of nudging or directing towards those kinds of choices, right? And so if we look at the game and we look at the ways in which nudging is used to target uh, conspiracies and provide a counter to misinformation, the problem I think at its core, besides the sort of insertion of the individual, is that such techniques are grounded in the idea that people want to be in on the game of internet manipulation, that they want to challenge their own beliefs, right? Where we know that actually a lot of research into psychological biases show that people are very hesitant to challenge their beliefs and they would be hesitant to voluntarily play a game like this. And in fact, when their beliefs are often challenged, the response is to double down and, and hold those beliefs closer. And so when you push them to challenge them, it can often actually have the adverse effect of entrenching your beliefs. And so, you know, in contrast to something like debunking, which attempts to respond to fake news or conspiratorialism after it's been spread, right? What pre-bunking it, as Max said, is trying to do is it's trying to inoculate you against it, to build up resistance against it um, and, and create a sort of like digital herd immunity but ironically, just like we know uh, with the vaccine, like real herd immunity doesn't really work. It seems that the digital herd immunity doesn't work as well. And in fact, like studies that have been coming out in the last couple of years from, from MIT and other researchers show that pre-bunking isn't really effective. You can't really prime people to be immune to conspiracy fantasies, to conspiratorialism. In fact, it seems like the only way that you can get people to sort of like uh, unpack and better understand uh, why they're sort of falling into these things is to be able to have them have already had that lived experience of falling into it so you can unpack some of those logics. So I think just to summarize really quickly, again, some of the reasons why pre-bunking doesn't work is it relies on first an assumption that people are willing to challenge beliefs, which they're not often willing to do. And the reason for that is because they're often entrenched in these communities that normalize these beliefs. So this other move of trying to like extract you as an individual information agent or something like that in the face of this community that you draw from, it just really isn't an effective response. You know, people are, are turning to conspiracy fantasies and theories because they feel alienated. So to pull them out and like reinsert that alienation and make them feel stupid or silly, it's, it's just not effective if the goal is to get them to question and challenge these fundamental beliefs. It's not quite time for me to bring in questions from the Q&A, but one of them is so topical that I thought I would just pose it to you. Josh, following up on, on precisely what you're saying, that, that this doesn't address the kind of pessimistic malaise that most people find themselves in, asks, 
do you believe this is an oversight or was the game perf purposefully designed by the Department of Defense and its partners to be flawed in the idea of a salve that is not a remedy to perpetuate, uh, uh, but not a remedy, but something that's intended to perpetuate the power structures inherent in the market-driven society? I mean, was this game built to fail or do you think it was a good faith effort? That's a good question. I think for me, it comes down to one of those. It's like a both and. I think that some of the people who designed this game in earnest probably believed it would help people debunk those conspiracy fantasies. Uh, at the same time, I think at like a higher level, there's probably an understanding that just making these interventions and putting them out there and being able to like speak to them rhetorically is probably more important to a lot of policy decision makers than an actual tangible material intervention, you know, in the in the larger sort of context of, of conspiracy theories. So yeah, I think it's probably a bit of both. Now this ties into the other side of our, our project, which I wanna to turn to now, which is that we're trying to understand this relationship between games, conspiracies and capitalism, not only by reading a lot of books and thinking hard about it and having a lot of Zoom conversations, but also by designing our own game um, and thinking about how we could try and make something that might be more effective, or maybe it's more accurate to say differently effective than something like Harmony Square. Um, and I, I'm going to show a little bit of a teaser of our game uh, in a moment. But before I kind of show what we're thinking about and what we're working on, Aras, I just wanted to invite you back in to, to unpack for us a tiny bit this notion of counter games. And, and why a counter game is important, and, and maybe in some ways how it's different from the kind of game uh, like Harmony Square, which is very um, sort of uh, uh, instrumental. It attempts to take games and use them in a, in a fairly didactic top-down way to you know, re-educate people, as, as Adam was saying. What, what's, what's the potential in thinking about counter games? Uh, so, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to your presentation of our own tentative attempt to create our own game. I think this will help a lot with illustrating this, this the concept of a counter game. But just to uh, follow on from what Adam was saying about Harmony Square and its way of uh, trying to pre-bank, to, to kind of... Uh, it's a way of treating users and gamers as ultimately uh, divided alongside this rational versus irrational binary. Uh, so even this inoculation principle ultimately aims to kind of uh, bring people back to a kind of logical and rational response to conspiracy theories, right, in order to uh, to offer them an exit, ultimately. And, and I think that often this is a problem with, even with progressive critiques of, of conspiracy theories, that, that they, their aim is, uh, even when they purport to want to understand the underlying structural uh, reasons behind the kind of inequalities and, and the neoliberal condition more broadly that gives rise to conspiracy theories, uh, they tend to overlook and neglect some of those collective and weird, strange elements of conspiracy worlds that I think are really worth uh, uh, sort of looking at in more detail. And these are some of these elements we've already mentioned, the elements of simply the pleasures of play and the kind of connections that people do generate through playing. Uh, but I think there is something in the principle of counter gaming that seeks to precisely go beyond that ultimate return 
to rationality uh, and to stay with the weirdness and the strangeness of, uh, of the game and weaponize it for more progressive aims. Uh, and I think we had here in our podcast a fantastic interview with Wu Ming Wan, who, who has actually produced, uh, has entered this dark world of games and produced uh, uh, games uh, as, a, as a collective that aim to, do, to precisely avoid this separation of an enlightened quest for uh, reason and uh, this kind of scientific uh, inclination to, to produce uh, answers to real problems with the world of wonder and joy and, uh, and fun that a game and a conspiracy often tends to contain. So I think the answer that a counter game on a kind of uh, conceptual level, that the answer that a counter game tries to offer is one that stays with both the elements of fun, wonder, excitement, enchantment, and the the, the world of uh, reason and uh, and rational endeavors uh, and and the and kind of and the kind of political agency that these rational endeavors uh, represent. So um, I think your your demonstration of deep state might give a little bit more clarity on that, but just to mention one final thing that uh, I think counter games for me rests on that logic of counter speculation that I sort of propose in in the book, which is uh, it's this it's this very it's a, it's a, it represents a way of inhabiting the volatile uh, space of financial capitalism, a way of uh, but not only inhabiting it, but taking a further step and weaponizing existing political volatility in order to counter dominant structures within financialized capitalism. And so counter speculations typically target governments and institutional power holders that oversee the uneven distributions of risk and responsibility in society. And they try to make uh, to, to forge solidarities in more ephemeral spaces, digital spaces, for instance, the worlds of weirdness of TikTok and uh, and you know the the, the examples of K-popers and uh, fandom communities kind of coming together in strange ways, uh, coming and going like swarms, and 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 producing more volatility, but but with real effects, such as for instance, an example that I often speak about is the way in which TikTokers and K-popers kind of united to. Uh, to produce this weird, to obfuscate uh, the various hashtags that were used by the neo-fascist movement during Black Lives Matter protests, uh, during the first wave of the pandemic, how they managed to create this spectacle of an empty stadium in, in Trump's Tulsa uh, speech. This all happened not through the vehicles of enlightening, uh, but, but through the vehicles of, of creating some more confusion, some more distortion, as we were saying earlier of staying with the darkness and weaponizing it. And so to conclude, I think counter games should aim to do a bit of that, should aim to uh, utilize creatively the existing distortions to even widen the distortions where they already exist uh, and turn them against uh, those institutional holders of, of power who are really trying to these days do precisely the same to create this real fake, to, to maintain real fake worlds of, uh, of, inexist, of, of inequality. Um, so it's, it's, it's about turning the logic of 
game of, of a conservative fantasy game to its head uh, for, for progressive means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll, I'll share our game in a second here, but I just want to bring in a couple of things from the chat. The first is uh, that Kier encourages us to really um, define what we mean by games and, and also counter games and suggest a beautiful definition from Bernard Suits, uh, which is the games are voluntary attempts to overcome unnecessary obstacles, which is, I think, a lovely, a lovely definition. And I want to I want to shout out to Alexander Galloway, too, who originated the notion of counter gaming, although I think he means it in a slightly different way than we do. Uh, For him, it's the ways in which gamers within pre-given gaming platforms, and he's especially interested in video games, sort of find nuances and glitches and places to insert themselves in the game so that they kind of play against the dominant strand. Whereas I think we're striving for a notion of counter games that's about really designing whole new games that... uh, uh, or finding, it could also, I suppose, be uh, extended to intervening in existing games or hacking or or uh, morphing or modding existing games in a way that try and use the particular seductiveness and uh, procedural rhetoric, to use Ian Bogost's terms, of games to be able to do a kind of counter-ideological work. And uh, Kelsey also writes uh, an interesting example from from those of us who are in Thunder Bay that recently a number of teenagers basically shut down their school for a month by calling in repeated uh, bomb threats. And uh, when finally they were apprehended, uh, part of their justification was that they were sort of, they were in a world of video games and this felt like one more game um, to them. Uh, So an interesting way in which games and life there's no there's no clean definition and in this day and age in which we live in the games and life uh under under financialized capitalism also mean there's no clear distinction i want to share the screen now and just briefly tell you about the game that we're working on which as as uh, aris mentioned is called deep state deep state of course being the name that many in the grips of the QAnon uh conspiracy fantasy give to the uh sort of octopus of uh, institutions, including the government, the media, and others that are secretly controlling the U.S. and other governments and using them to orchestrate a massive plot of satanic pedophilia involving uh, celebrities, politicians, and economic elites. Um, our game attempts to introduce a kind of conversation about what drives conspiracy fantasies. And it specifically came out of one of the things that that I had been told by a student and we had heard echoed by others of students of ours, which is that, you know, they come to the university and they learn all about, you know, ideology and capitalism and all of the actual systems which are dominating uh, our lives, colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, etc. And they go home to talk to their families, uh, but they find it increasingly difficult to do so and increasingly difficult to do so because many people in their families uh, are in the grips of these conspiracy fantasies. And all they can do is play board games together because it's a non-controversial, non-political topic. Until now, um, we thought, well, then let's use the board game as a insertion vector for an invitation to a critical conversation. So the game Deep State, uh, without going into too many details, basically has four levels. So the first level is the simplest. It's basically we stole the um, the gameplay of Clue. You 
throughout the turns of the game, you turn over, there are nine cards. Three of the cards are hidden under the table. Uh, six cards are available for you to use resources to look at. And based on getting chances to look at the six revealed cards, you have to deduce or guess at the three hidden cards. And each of these cards represents a power broker. So you have you know, uh, the military industrial complex, you have the mainstream media, you have, uh, you know, uh, secret government agents, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. All of these different power brokers who might be part of a conspiracy, and you're trying to guess which are th the three real parts of the conspiracy you're trying to uncover. Okay, but layer two adds another level of complexity. Because essentially, as you're trying to access the six cards which you can see and guess the three cards you can't see, you have to have resources to do it. You have to have money and you have to have followers. And in order to gain money and followers in, in enough uh, quantity to be able to compete in the game, it is a competitive game, not a cooperative game, you have to lie. You have to announce a conspiracy that you either believe is true or that you're trying to fool your opponents into thinking is true in order to gain money and followers. So in this game, it's not just about guessing the true conspiracy, it's also about showing how announcing a conspiracy, sharing a conspiracy, being conspiratorial brings all sorts of benefits to those who share this fake news, or perhaps it's the real news. Okay, that's layer two. Layer three is that each person, each player in the game is also playing a different character. So some characters are chaos causing troll armies. One character is a dedicated uh, journalist who's only there for the truth. Another character is an aspiring political candidate. Another character is an agent of a foreign government trying to sow the seeds of discord and chaos. And each character, and your character is kept hidden throughout the game until the very end, each character has different powers, but more importantly, they have different criteria for winning the game. So everyone appears to be playing the same game. Everyone appears on the surface to be trying to debunk or uncover the conspiracy. But in fact, every single player has a very different set of criteria for winning. Some people just want to cause chaos and create division. Some people really want to find out the truth. Some people want to make sure that certain power brokers get accused more often than other power brokers. And the fourth layer of the game that we're working on now is a kind of storytelling layer. So the other layers of the game are quite mechanistic. They're quite uh, rigid. They really try and work with a player's attraction to uh, learning through strategizing. Uh, we've been researching a number of authors who talk about the way that games teach us about society by encouraging us to do a kind of problem solving within the game space. Uh, we're interested mostly in that, but we also want to include an element of the game, the final layer, where you actually get to do some role playing, where you get to do some uh, lying, some, uh, some kind of imaginative work that's not within the strict confines of the game, but that kind of expands outward from it. So the game is very much still in development uh, and we will hopefully have it more developed by the end of this summer institute, which is one of the reasons we called it together. Uh, but we did wanna share it with you today as an example. Now, I wanna turn to some of the questions in our last 10 minutes or so uh, from, the, um, from our uh, audience here. So Andrew asks in the article that the three of us wrote, uh, we refer to the puzzle that QAnon creates an infinite game, which draws on our reading of James C. Carse, whose book Finite and Infinite Games has proven quite useful. Uh, but 
Andrew asks, does not the QAnon game have a final goal? If you take down this evil satanic cabal and break up the pedophilic ring, do you not win that game? And while the game mechanics may push you into a never-ending loop where you're constantly following cues, drops of information, and doing this kind of endless interpretive work that followers of the QAnon phenomenon are so seduced by, uh, does not the overreaching goal and idea of the game make it a finite thing, or at very least a game that can be won? At terrible costs, of course, as we've seen in real life tragedies, we might cite the Pizzagate guy showing up with his AK, you know, his uh, M16 assault rifle, or the siege of the US Capitol, or many of the other affiliated uh, sort of terroristic acts that have been undertaken by QAnon followers. But nonetheless, Andrew asks, in the, in the, it might indeed be an infinite game, but in the mind of the player, is it not a finite game? What do, what do you folks think of that? I think it's probably still infinite. I think that to some extent, the player's primary like uh, modus operandi is to keep that community going, to keep the game going. I think for me, that's maybe the big distinction is it's not maybe about winning, but the continuation and extension of it. And 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 like what it would mean to win, I think in the Q game is so vaguely defined. You know, when you when we're talking about a finite game, it's like score ten points uncover the murder you know like in 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 the context of clue like you need to know who did it in which room with what and i think with QAnon, it's like much vaguer than that and it's much more open and i wonder if it could ever be closed if there could ever really be like a satisfactory resolution i think more likely is that people will peter off and, and maybe find other infinite games to play instead but i don't know if losing interest is the same thing as like the game being concluded or like there being a winner but I don't know, maybe Aris, you have some, some thoughts about this as well. No, very similar to, to what you just said, Adam. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's a, it is a tricky one because I think that, uh, you know, uh, assessing what constitutes victory um, in, in playing a, a counter game, uh, for instance, I mean, that, that, that is also very interesting, like politically, because, I mean, you know, we are interested here in a in looking at the underlying kind of uh, potential of counter gaming to, to kind of coalesce the kind of political communities that will, will rethink and, and act in, in radical ways. So in, in, in a sense, you know, we, we, are, we are interested in victories, right? Uh, it's just the kind of the, the shape of those victories. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure where, whether that leaves us in a, in a perpetual uh, kind of play mode or, or whether there are identifiable victories that we can, we can, we can achieve or, and, and are indeed being achieved um, even in spite of the gamer's intentions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I want to bring in here a comment from, from Casey in our, uh, in our group uh, that in the, in the documentary, uh, quite revealing documentary, Q Into the Storm, which aired a couple of months ago on HBO, uh, which sort of is a five episode documentary where the, the filmmaker gets kind of unprecedented access to some of the individuals behind the QAnon phenomenon. Uh, the filmmaker, uh, I think quite rightly indicates that, uh, this, that the QAnon phenomenon evolves directly, if, if evolution is the right metaphor, uh, from the Gamergate phenomenon during which time um, almost exclusively male gamers created a massive kind of backlash army 
to uh, horrifically harass and dox, which is to say reveal the personal information of uh, feminist critics of video games and anti-racist critics of video games. And it was, it was sort of uh, presented in this language of like, um, you know, language that would become quite familiar to us a few years later with the, the rise of Donald Trump in the United States and the Brexit vote of a kind of uh, privileged persecution that people who have a great deal of privilege in our society were feeling persecuted for uh, liking games that were highly sexist and then took it upon themselves not only to attack these uh, critics, but also to make a huge kind of game of it. And uh, the filmmakers show how a number of the individuals who were kind of, um, uh, if not the masterminds, then the, the let's say the dungeon masters of the Gamergate game uh, became the dungeon masters uh, of the QAnon game as well. Um, and that uh, Casey also points out that this is often um, done in a spirit that says sort of like, haha, we're only joking. But of course, you know, for those affected by the impacts of these games, it's not a joke and it's it's not a game. Or if it is a game, it's, it's not a fun game. It's not an enjoyable or uh, generative game. Um, I suppose uh, I kind of wanted to bring us now to a bit of a close um, by, by, I suppose, posing to both of you the question of um, how then, we, we've spoken a bit about how games could be a part of countering the kinds of disinformation and, um, and conspiracism that emerges that is sort of symptomatic of the form of financialized capitalism we're in. And this, the, game, the question I'm going to ask you anticipates our guest on Thursday, who's Brian from the TISA Games Collective, but how could games not only be a method of countering these nefarious trends, but how could games also contribute to movements for economic and social justice, for a revolutionary change that could not only counter the effects and symptoms of financialized capitalism, but could actually generate enough popular power to overcome and defeat financialized capitalism. Any, any thoughts on revolutionary games? Uh, I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll say something quickly. I mean, I think that, you know, and I think a lot of this is kind of just under the surface and a lot of the work that the three of us do is that, you know, the ubiquity of this alienation. So for example, in my own work, the ubiquity of that everyone's feeling more anxious. And again, I'm not so much interested in empirically if anxiety is going up so much so that is the concept used to invoke all these different feelings and how's that significant. But the ubiquity of anxiety can become like a very mobilizing thing because if you recognize that everybody is feeling anxious and you're not isolated in that anxiety, it can sort of turn. It can become this thing that you thought you were all alone in, but now you notice that everybody's kind of experiencing it. It can take away some of the, the power of it. It can, it, can, uh, it can make it empowering. And I wonder if there's something similar there with games that we're trying to explore, the ways that like a shared gaming experience can unlock, uh, again, to what Aris said, a different kind of form of, of speculation. Um, I think we all agree that the, it is the wrong response to try and use sort of like logic and jurisprudence to attack positions that were not established using either of those things. And so we need to instead turn towards speculation and play and playfulness as a way as a way to do that. And I think that it can be helpful because again, I think it can unlock the ubiquity of it. And I really do think that it can be like a trick that, you know, is sort of like 
a veil um, that makes it really seem like it's not possible and you're all on your own and feeling this way um, until you don't, until it's not, um, until all of these things can fall away. Or at least maybe that's my sort of like cautious optimism about this. Yeah, it's the very quick. I mean, I, I completely agree with Adam. I think, you know, games for me, the sort of revolutionary potential of games is probably for me, very simply, the way in which they, the mirror uh, they offer us with which to kind of, in which to see the world that we inhabit in, in all its strangeness and, and all its kind of darkness. And um, I think there is something quite potentially liberating in uh, looking at that mirror and participating in, uh, in, in, in the world they open up um, in the sense of, uh, kind of going beyond that domination of the, the pressing need to produce kind of discernible uh, answers or because I don't want to, I, I, I'm always hesitating because I don't want, you know, I don't, I don't like this kind of anything goes, uh, uh, you know, all answers, any answer goes kind of mantra. But I think there's something quite liberating about uh, unlocking that, that box of uh, that that games offer, which is you know playing the, this infinite game logic of playing free play, uh, and the way that free play exceeds those boundaries that that we're talking about. I think there's something quite radical in that logic, and in recognizing that that already exists uh, in in the in the game. I think there's something quite beautiful in that.